Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Judge Gail Williams Byers, a black female judge of the South Euclid, Ohio Municipal Court. This is part of our ongoing series of conversations about race and racism. Judge Byers first became judge in 2012. She's in her second term. She also is a fellow at the National Judicial College and a former assistant prosecutor in Cleveland. Today, we talk about systemic racism in the criminal justice system, from police actions to courts. We also talk about over-policing and how some cities expect courts to produce revenue streams on the backs of the poor. Judge, the last time we talked, you talked about your community in particular being about 50% African-American or other people of, of color, very diverse community as you described it. However, you made a statement that stuck with me. You said 90% of the people in front of you in court are black. How can that ratio be? Well, it's interesting um, that that is the dynamic um, and the outcome, Tom, that 90% of the litigants that actually show up, arrive, appear in my court are disproportionately uh, minorities, African-Americans, black and brown people. But remember, the individuals that show up in my court don't come there on their own. It's a function of the relationship with those that are responsible for ensuring or, or re- making them show up. Remember that our conversations about race and policing and even over-policing to some degree, um, this intersection um, isn't just about what we've been touching on or perhaps even what we've seen um, by way of, of, of television with um, law enforcement and police brutality. Although I know that that is a very, very important element to not only discuss and tackle, but I genuinely believe that the overarching issue as it relates to police um the relationship and the correlation between those um, often tense interactions, um, which frequently results in brutality and that intersection with Black people, um, the ground zero for that is that intersection with how that um, first starts with the policies and procedures that are put in place in the communities that are being policed. For example, police don't operate in a vacuum or in a silo. Police officers are operating from the notions and the responsibilities that are provided from them by their chiefs. The chiefs are operating from the responsibilities that are handed down from mayors and city councils. And all of those higher level structures that 
are now trickled down to how they respond to these communities they're supposed to protect and serve. And so these confrontations that we are seeing on the streets are actually in response to the larger justice system apparatus, I would like to say. And we saw this six years ago or so in Ferguson. And truer words were never spoken than when I believe I heard it was President Obama say just a few short weeks ago that at its core, what we really have to focus on is we change the system by holding city councils and mayors and courts accountable for how this entire system works, not just the police officers on the street, because they alone are not the only responsible parties. The way that the large majority of African-Americans and Black people get into my court isn't just a function of over-policing a community that is barely breaking at 50% African-American. Yes, it's the officers that are in many ways focused and maybe lasering in on those individuals, but that is a reflection of how this entire system is allowing that to happen. And when you say this entire system, you mean the entire judicial system from the street clear up through the court system and the expectations given by city councils and mayors and county commissioners, et cetera. Exactly. And to make it even clearer, I should maybe explain more clearly how these systems come together and how they interplay. When you have communities which have historically, and and I will speak from the smaller community perspective, and the reason I say this is because when you talk about higher level courts, your felony level courts, and even some of your specialty courts, such as juvenile courts, domestic courts, and the like, you don't see this same dynamic. But the issue and the concern about communities being over-policed, and I use air quotations when I say that, by and large, that concern about over-policing comes into play at the lowest level. It's when you see individuals feeling completely lorded over for the most minor offenses. Define over-policing, if you can, so that our audience knows what that term means. I think I know, but uh, the average person out there might not know what you mean by that. Well, Again, over-policing, meaning you have perhaps in some communities, several or multiple police agencies that are able to respond to a single community, or you have police agencies that are particularly aggressive in policing certain communities for even minor infractions with very little opportunity for diversions or um, alternate responses to, again, minor infractions. By that, I mean, you may have some communities that have not only the local police that have jurisdiction, but maybe there's a county police department that has jurisdiction. And then there may be some other police agency that has jurisdiction. So perhaps if you have a college or university on that in that particular area. So they share jurisdiction with a local police agency. And so in that geographic area, you may have two or three agencies that have the jurisdiction or the authority to police those same individuals. And in that particular geographic area, which may be particularly saturated with black or brown people, that means that it's inescapable for them to have, you know, they can't do anything without having some set of police force that is constantly in charge of their every move and every single thing they do. And if not that- We're talking about- somewhat insignificant things like jaywalking and minor offenses, not just major offenses. We're talking about 
them being looked over by a policeman or a police agency for the most minor of living things. Indeed. And by comparison, the belief is that these most minor of things that happen in everyday life are also the things that most Black people believe that if they were not Black, ergo white, that these are the same things that they would likely never experience being policed for. And so jaywalking is not necessarily a crime if you are white. It It is, you know, these are, littering is not a crime if you are white. There are so many things that are not considered criminal if you are white. And this dates all the way back to the era of Jim Crow, that slavery was abolished, but the way to continue to control Blacks was to criminalize even the most minor things. And so once those minor things were criminalized, it allowed whites to remain in levels of superior control over blacks. And so what happened? Well, you faced the most severe punishment for the most minor infractions. And that is how slavery was replaced with the very draconian rules of Jim Crow. And so we ask ourselves, have we really, really moved past that? Well, Michelle Alexander tells us in her book, The New Jim Crow, we very well, ha we haven't moved a whole lot past that. We've really only replaced it. And so now in some communities, where you may not have multiple police agencies that have the jurisdiction over a small geographic area. Now you just have maybe one, one police agency. And that one police agency maybe strongly polices that particular area. Why? Because they want to make sure that the message is sent, that this is not acceptable. We aren't going to tolerate you or this behavior or these elements in this community. And so even the most, again, minor infractions are zeroed in and those things are in fact penalized. And how are they penalized? Well, what we see in many instances and this is a function of, this is how your city councils, your mayors, and your community leaders, and even courts are playing a role in perpetuating this. Because what has become, what was traditionally the apparatus in place, and we've seen a lot of pushback on this recently, is the response was, well, you tell these individuals once they are brought into these places that the best way to get them is to take their money. Well, we always knew that blacks were more economically deprived than any other ethnic group. And so their access to financial resources were always limited. And so that's why you saw more prevalently the experience of blacks being left behind in jail over bailed or bonds that they couldn't meet because they were too poor while their white counterparts were far more likely to be able to make bail and get out, not because there was a difference in the types of crimes they were committed, but their access was different. Rich people or people that had access to money got out, poor people stayed in. Disproportionately, the poor people tended to be black people or people of color, while those who were able to get out tended to be white people. That's those were just the facts. Let let me move back though a, a, a moment in in thinking of police forces uh, still are predominantly white, uh, not exclusively, but predominantly white, uh, especially in some of the ring areas around major cities. 
the fact that they have this scrutiny on certain neighborhoods inhabited by African-American or other minorities, it seems to me, if we're looking at systemic problems, there is an inherent uh, decision on the part of the police that black people or brown people are unlawful, that they cannot behave within the law, and therefore they have to be watched with greater scrutiny for the societal good. Am I off base? Is that the underlying thinking if we really dig down into what this is all about? Well, what I will say is that is at least the suggestion that rules are in place and to the extent that there is an expectation that rules must be followed, there must be a greater eye placed upon Black people to ensure that they follow rules because there is a greater, the suspicion of a greater likelihood and maybe even the um, proof that that suspicion is correct because guess who always ends up in court? Because they don't follow the rules. And how do we know they don't follow the rules? Because we're always catching them breaking the rules. And we catch them breaking the rules all the time. And when their white counterparts are maybe outside the bounds of the rules, well, it's likely because they didn't mean it. And we can assign frequent rationale to why that happened, whereas for their Black counterparts, they are generally, usually by and large, not provided such leniency. Okay. So if, if that is a systemic problem, let me add to that a perception that I have, and I want to see if you would agree with me. All too often, small city, suburban, ring, suburb mayors, uh, city managers, city councils, assume that the court will act as a a revenue stream for, for the city. I'm trying to put it in good terms. A revenue stream for the city. So there is impetus on the police to make more of these over-policing kind of ticky-tacky arrests and citations to bring more money into the city. Is that a correct perception on my part? That is perhaps one of the most accurate assessments that you have made. And again, I think that both of our experiences as um, judges in this, again, this apparatus has has certainly borne that out. Um, it is no secret. Um, again, and we saw this even in play in, in Ferguson, Missouri, that local governments have used police forces and courts as revenue generating ATMs or piggy banks. And that has been the linchpin here. They pressure police chiefs, they who then pressure officers to maintain stats, to meet quotas, to write tickets, to generate Um, cash. And how does that equate to cash? Well, the more tickets you write, the more cases are produced through the courts. Well, the more fines that get assessed and the more fines that get assessed, the more payments that are made, the more payments that are made, the more revenue that get generated, the more revenue that gets generated, the more money that's brought into the court. And since courts are courts, not banks, that money gets turned over to cities. 
And so since the money gets turned over to cities, city councils and mayors and city officials are then made very happy with the courts because now the courts are not justice centers, they're profit centers. And so as long as the courts continue in this cycle of increasing or generating money that inures to the benefit of the jurisdiction that they're in, then all's well that ends well, even if it's to the detriment of the litigants. Because as you probably realized in this entire time, I've not mentioned due process. Not no, no, not I've once. not mentioned uh, you know, rights, not once. I've not mentioned anything about ensuring that litigants and defendants have an understanding of why they're there. Quite frankly, in this cycle, all of that is largely a non-issue because the preeminent concern is just getting the money. In fact, that is also part of the scheme related to bonds. Bonds have traditionally, historically been used to sit there in the court as a down payment toward the fine. This is how you can almost ensure that the city's going to get their money because if a defendant is arrested, forced to pay a bond, then that bond money sits with the court until the case is resolved. And then once the case is resolved, then a fine can be assessed, which perhaps more likely than not, is equal to and maybe even more than the original bond that is posted, whether or not the defendant themselves posted the bond. Quite frankly, it could have been grandmama's rent money. Doesn't matter because that bond money is sitting there already. And let me just interject here. A bond, for people who may not know, is what a, a financial payment that somebody puts up after having been arrested, they put up a bond to be released from custody or sometimes released from jail. The intent of a bond is to be a security for the person returning to every stage of the legal proceeding uh, so that they don't skip out. If they do skip out, the city or the, the government, the court, collects the bond and retains it. But what you're saying, uh, Judge, is that those bonds are sometimes overused to to assure payment of fines and assure this revenue stream that we've been talking about. Indeed. And that if that money is sitting there, having been paid to for the initial purpose of ensuring the defendant's return to court throughout each and every stage of the proceedings, at its conclusion, the court is aware that the bond, which was paid at the beginning, is still there at the end because the defendant has held up his end of the bargain, has returned for every single hearing, all of the proceedings, has made it to the end. And now at the conclusion of the case, perhaps it is ripe or it is time for a sentence to be passed. And as part of that sentence, a fine is imposed. And a fine is the financial penalty that is part of the, the sanction of the case. Now, the court could impose, in addition to that, maybe um, a term of probation, which is a requirement that the defendant continues to come back to the court and to see a probation officer, an employee of the court, to make sure that they are complying with other terms or conditions, which could include everything from community service to remaining employed, drug testing. Um, these things are put in place to ensure that the defendant remains um, compliant with community standards and court requirements. 
usually to ensure that they do not commit new offenses and to address any other outstanding issues the court see is important. Now, in this instance, they could pay a fine and maybe pee on probation or a fine only or any mixture of things. But that bond money is certainly and often used as maybe a down payment to secure the fine money. And that way you never have to worry about whether or not the defendant has a job to pay the fine or if someone else will loan them the money or give them the money to pay it or to make a payment arrangement because the money's already there. So let me try to do a visual (laughs) through auditory means. We've got a layer of over-policing that targets uh, minority populations, black and brown populations primarily, uh, with uh, ticky-tacky types of violations that a white person may get off with a warning or the police officer may even just not see it or not totally disregard it. We have that. Then we have if the black person or the brown person is arrested, then they may be required to put up a bond or they go to jail. If they can't put up the bond, as you say, grandma may put in her month's rent to put up the bond, but it is a financial penalty before the case is even heard, before there's any kind of adjudication of whether the person's guilty or not. The next thing I want to talk about is that person has to come to court. So if if that person is employed or marginally employed or sometimes employed, that's got to mess up their lives and be part of this systemic prejudice as well, is it not? Indeed, uh, which creates another layer of anxiety inside of an entire community of people who already see a system that where the deck is stacked against them. And that creates consternation. There's already the level of distrust. And what I will say, even before getting there, what I'm encouraged by are all of the efforts that have been made to address bond bail reform. And bail reform has really addressed that one issue that you were talking about moments ago, which talks about the the systemic and inherent disproportionate unfairness inside of the bail system that says essentially, you know, you're punishing people for being poor. It's not a crime to be poor. You may allege that someone has committed an offense, but our system of government says that you are innocent until proven guilty. But we have for so long treated them like they are guilty simply and only because they are poor and we have left people incarcerated for low-level nonviolent offenses for no reason other than the fact that they just, they don't have a grandmother that has the rent money that they can use to bail someone out, so they must sit there. And we have not created enough avenues for them to get to retain or regain their freedom while their cases are pending. And I'm so encouraged by the groundswell of support to move to a cashless bail system that allows more people access to freedom while their cases are pending as opposed to less. DC has done a fantastic job um, of doing that. I think they've pretty much moved to, I think about 99% of their cases are personal bonds with pretrial services. Even right here in our own backyard, the city of Cleveland has moved to um, a system which predominantly provides pretrial services as opposed to bail. Um, and they are seeing great results with regard to that. And it is certainly a model that deserves mimicking more and more. And I think that is what is going to help turn the tide here. And you are absolutely right on the next point, which is, After being charged with an offense and even arrested, the level of anxiety for someone who is Black and poor and underemployed 
or not employed or marginally employed or somebody that's trying to piece together a few jobs here or there, that level of anxiety skyrockets because the idea that you have to now balance the responsibility of showing up in court or facing a warrant being issued for your arrest. And a warrant is the court's ability to order the police to arrest you wherever because you have failed to appear in court, which could also could jeopardize everything. It could jeopardize your the little bit of employment that you have, which now creates a ripple effect. If your employment is impacted, then your housing may be impacted because if you can't work, you can't pay for where you stay. If you are a parent, you may have your ability to keep custody of your children impacted, especially if you're a single parent. So that in fact causes another level of anxiety. So you now have perhaps no job. You now have maybe no ability to care for yourself or to maintain a roof over your head. You may not have an ability to keep your children. And this, of course, now not only happens with the warrant being issued, this happens at the time of arrest. What we know is 72 hours of incarceration, 72 hours can bring about these life-turning events. And it happens more often to black and brown people than their non-minority counterparts. Now, you instituted a night court to help people who are employed to come to court at a time where they wouldn't be losing their job or losing hours uh, on the job or losing pay. That did not meet with everybody's approval, though, did it? You are so right. I will never forget um, a few things. I When I first ran for my office, and it was during 2011, this having a night court was one of the things that I knew instantly was necessary and would be helpful because I came from a working class family. My dad is a pastor, but he was also a school bus driver growing up. My mother was a dispatcher at the local gas company. So both my parents had working positions. They did the best they could to take care of my sisters and I. And I thought about the fact that if either of my parents had to show up in court, and quite frankly, maybe they did. I just didn't know that that was the case. But if my parents had to show up in court during the day, then they were hourly wage earners. And that much I did know because my mother would tell us, hey, listen, I work for the gas company. I don't own them. So make sure you are closing the doors and not turning the heat up too high and <laughs> you know, not wasting. Until she reminded us of, you know, to be very mindful of those things. But in all of that, I said when I became a judge, I was reminded of my own parents. And I wanted to make sure that I always remembered where I came from. So starting a night court was something I ran on. I will never forget that, you know, there was um, a certain jurist that made sure, um, I think they even told the, the it might have been the then county councilwoman and even some others at the time <laughs> that my proposal for a night court was no more than propaganda, that it was impractical and that these were just promises that politicians make, but we never follow through on them. And I believe that that, I don't know what place it came from because it was clear to me that that jurist didn't know me, nor did they understand the reason for why this was important to me. And it was important to me from a personal level, but it was also important to me because I knew that the community I came from, which by the way, the community I was raised in is one of the poorest communities in Northeast Ohio. The percentage of families and individuals 
in the community that I was raised in has the highest percentage of families on some form of public assistance in the entire county, the highest. So I am keenly aware of what it might mean if a family has to have the one working individual in the household that's an hourly wage earner potentially lose those wages for the day because they have to sit in court for several hours for a case. So a night court is practical and helpful because those wages matter. I started the night court and I will never forget maybe a couple weeks or so, not even a month into this night court, I get a call from a colleague um, in a local court who remain nameless and I'm thinking they're calling to say, hey, you know, good job. That's an innovative thought. Um, way to go. And instead, this colleague who is a is a female, a white female, says to me, what would, what would you ever do that for in reference to the night court? And my response, actually, I was fairly incredulous because I couldn't understand, A, why it mattered. Having a night court wasn't a mandate by the Supreme Court or anybody else. But <laughs> she wanted to know, why would I do a thing like that? And this goes to the mindset of this white judge and others um, I think that just had that mindset at the time because this judge's response was the most I'm willing to do is to leave a box for them to leave their payment here, but they don't pay me enough to have a night court. These people need to come when I'm here. And so let, go ahead. These people. These people need to come when I'm here. Again, a characterization that is rampant through the system. Mm -hmm. These people mm -hmm. from the police to the court personnel to judges, mm -hmm. these people. Let me let me talk about that a, a bit. So we've got the person who may have been arrested for a ticky-tack violation or or supposed violation. Uh, they have to post bond. They're they're inconvenienced by by coming to court. When they are in court, let's talk about that environment by and large. If you're a person of color and you come to court, by and large, the prosecutor sitting across from you is going to be white. In my the, community, you, you're absolutely correct. And in fact, not only is the prosecutor going to be white, it's not by and large. Um, your chances being, again, amongst the 90 percentile that appear for, um, and, and when I say 90 percent of, of the litigants, I mean 90 percent of the, the traffic and criminal cases. The civil Correct. cases are, are different, but the traffic Correct. criminal cases, um, for those who appear, 90 percent are, are black. And, but for those who appear, not only is it by and large, in the since 2012 to date, your chances of a prosecutor being white is 100%. Not by and large. No, it's 100%. And not only are they white, they're white males. And I'm not suggesting that they're incompetent white males. I'm not suggesting that they don't know their jobs. I'm not suggesting that they are um, incapable of navigating the law. What I am saying is that there is great value in diversity. All right. So we're talking about the environment there. The prosecutor is a white male. Uh, the defendant is a, a person of color. Uh, the judge 
sometimes, most of the time, is white. Uh, clearly, not all the time, but most of the time it is is white. I'm just talking about the environment of sort of, it's a hostile environment. If we talk about hostile work environments, you know, it, this is certainly a hostile environment that somebody is in where people are talking a foreign language of legalese and, and things are going fast and rapidly. And if I were the remember, defendant, and I, I, might, I might be a little hostile as well. And remember, but, there are a few other elements in the room that add to those feelings. Okay, of what are those? Remember, you have a police officer that has is likely the charging officer, who is more likely than not white. You have the bailiffs for the court that are providing security. They probably don't look like you. You have all of the staff that if you're looking for help to navigate this process, you likely don't see anybody with whom you can even make eye contact with that will even visually speak your language. Talk about feeling isolated. And all you're really thinking about is, am I going to be at the bus stop to pick my kid up today over a red light ticket? Am I going to be the one to read the bedtime story? Am I going to need to call my aunt to go pick my wife up from work? Because... This stop sign violation went sideways today. I walked into this room and I'm referring to the prosecutor as Mr. So-and-so. And I called the officer, officer so-and-so. And the judge is judge so-and-so. And they just call me Brian. Or they just refer to me by my first name. But I'm going to do it because my kid expects me to pick them up from the bus stop today. So then you get judges who oftentimes react. You, you mentioned the last time we talked, and I wanted to emphasize it because we sort of glossed over it and everything else we were talking about. You've, you've had incidents of white judges uh, duct taping uh, black defendants' mouth shut in court and, and others. Relate some of those to us, please. Well, and again, these are, you know, the responses. You have black defendants, and I think what it is at its core is exactly what we see played out in society and what we're seeing a lot of frustration about with regard to protests. Oh my goodness. We don't know why people are protesting. The level of fed upness with an entire system that is criminalizing everything. And I mean, everything, as I indicated to have a judge, any judge that, you know, would say, hey, you know what? You can't have any more children out of wedlock. One would have to say, how do you enforce that? Like, what is what is the ability to do that? Is that another power effort? Is that another way to exert power over me? Or is that just your way of saying, you know, I'm just so doggone tired of you people not getting it together the way you all don't manage to create these perfect family structures. Well, have you ever considered the fact that the Black family structure was destroyed from slavery? 
You broke our families up when you brought us over and started ripping babies out of the arms of mothers and selling them like they were chess pieces. So the idea that Blacks don't have these perfect nuclear families like other ethnic groups should not be surprising. And oh, by the way, when you do see the reflection of that, then we're uppity and we're too good and we think we're better. So it's a no-win situation. And so, yes, there is that bubbling up and there's that built up frustration. And then when you see the reaction of that and you see the outbursts of it, then it has to be contained. Then you're out of control. So that's when you need to be shackled, chained, duct taped, restrained. Because now you're uncontrollable. But what's missing, I think, along the way is understanding where a lot of that frustration is coming from. And that frustration isn't necessarily born out of the moment. It's born out of just repeated, over and over and over, repeated points of mistreatment, suppression. And and again, ways that other individuals just don't even see it. I will promise you, There's so many people who don't realize how many times they've offended me by saying, you are so (laughs) well-spoken. Or articulate. You're so articulate. As if being able to string together a grammatically correct sentence is the exception and not the rule. Because my white counterparts have never, I believe, they've never gotten a compliment like that. I've never been called well-spoken, I have to say that. Right. (laughs) Or articulate, necessarily. How many times do you get called articulate? No. no. Right. But to me, I should be, I should say thank you. I should say thank you. Because... Being an articulate black woman means I have arrived somewhere I don't know. It means that you're less other is what it means in their view. You're less other. You're more like me. You're less other. And we can't stand other. Right. And, and, And you're for now, you're okay. But. If you step out of line too much, articulate one, I may have to remind you. Then you're mouthy. Yes. 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 So you do have to understand that this is a compliment for now. These judges that do things in court, like the duct tape, like saying you're going to bust a cap in somebody's ass or or you know telling people not to have children out of wedlock, you're so ordered or or whatever they say. What happens to those judges? Anything? No. I mean, again, these are and, and I guess it depends on, you know, if you're black or white. If you're, you know, when you're white judges, yes, there's you know, someone might mention it. There might be some indication that, oh, this happened. But here's what I'll tell you. When it comes to media exposure, oh, what I'll tell you is you won't get three weeks worth of a news story on the front page of the paper because it was found to be so offensive. No, you won't get that. But okay, but l- let me let, let me back up here because early in you, your career, earlier I should say in your career, uh, you got some national acclaim for making a white male <laughs> sit in a lawn chair with a sign that's at a major intersection, if I'm getting the facts right, saying, I am a bully. 
you got raked over the coals in, in the national news media about how dare you do that. Now, for people to understand, you can sentence somebody to do something like that if you also give them the alternative of going to jail. So you either sit there and declare that you're a bully or you go to jail for X number of days, your, your choice. Exactly. So you're not actually forcing the person uh, to do it. You're giving them a choice, but the choice is, is, is pretty obvious. That being said, you got national news for that. I don't see national news for duct taping somebody's mouth shut or a judge saying, I'm going to bust a cap in your ass to, to a black defendant. The standards are interesting, isn't it? The dichotomy is, is mind-blowing. And remember, at, at its core, that that individual was had engaged in in also heinous racist consistent racist behavior um, over time multiple over times over time multiple times and believe it or not and it goes right back to what we're discussing here his the response to his behavior had merely been to just pay money so the city was fine with him and he'd never been punished beyond opening his wallet and so he saw nothing wrong with his behavior because he could pay his way out of it. And this goes back to the issue of, well, I've been doing exactly what I'm expected to do, which is I help to balance these scales of justice with nickels and dimes every time I'm called into this place called a courtroom. And so I pay my money. What's the big deal? This has been the thinking, particularly when it comes to courts of first impression, usually your municipal courts, which I think are our first best chance to shape the thinking of how justice systems work. And we have, I think in many communities, we've failed miserably. Why? Because these courts have traditionally been used and more so as piggy banks. And whereas we're holding police officers, which they should be, they should be held accountable for what happens and what these interactions look like um, in communities that they are required to serve um, and, and to get to know the communities that they're serving. But the fact still remains that they are getting their marching orders from their chiefs, who are also working in concert with city councils and mayors who are clearly sending the message that we value money over people. And your first responsibility is to ensure that you get enough people in here, that you get enough cases in here that are going to generate money because we value money. In fact, I know I personally had the experience of having my the, the mayor in my city was the ringleader of an entire campaign to get rid of my entire court. And the premise was the court isn't making enough money. The court doesn't bring in enough money. And because it doesn't make us enough money, we shouldn't have this third branch of government. Court costs too much. If we pay too much for justice, then get rid of it. We need to send it someplace else where basically we can get more bang for our buck. So if you won't lean on these people and make these people pay more and bring in us more money, then why should we have a court at all? It is mind blowing to think that a judge should have to come to its city council and explain that it is not the duty of a court to make a city money. Judge, um, I, I want to wrap up here in a few minutes, but uh, I, I want us to take a 30,000-foot view. Uh, we've been down in the weeds as we've been talking here, and and that's where I wanted to be. But we're hearing measures before Congress. Uh, yesterday, President Trump signed some executive order about police reform, and and clearly, police reform is is necessary, however it shakes out in whatever congressional bill gets passed. 
But what I'm hearing you say is that we have systemic problems that go beyond the police on the street, that these are problems of the greater criminal justice system. These are problems of of the court system and its interrelationship with other branches of government. And the brown and black person usually is the target of that. Precisely. And they are the ones that are being used as essentially the spoke in the wheel. The policies are being made outside the consideration of the brown and black person. It's just that they're the ones that are being used to ensure that those policies come to fruition. They aren't the ones that the brown and the black people aren't the ones sitting at the table and deciding, you know what, our goal is to bring in X amount of dollars this year and the police department and the court working in concert together are just the, just the ticket to, to build these revenues. But here's what we know is that that's exactly what has transpired. And because it's worked so well before, because it has been such a successful recipe before. It is the idea of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We've been doing this just fine. So what we've got entire communities where we've told people, yes, this is your fine. And I tell you what, I'm not going to put you in jail, but I am going to tell you that here's a phone, here's a room, and you cannot go home until you've called enough people to bring this money up here. Now, I'm not putting you in jail, but I am telling you that you need to essentially raise this money before you can go home. That is abhorrent. But that is also the system that is put in place. And that is the antithesis of justice. But that also tells us that there are certain systems in place where we've told black and brown people, we don't care anything about your justice. We, we haven't mentioned it so far. After all, these are just, you know, low level cases. You shouldn't be so concerned about this. This is just a traffic stop, right? Well, we've seen many a traffic stop go sideways. Well, I was going to say, if you just look over the last year or two, uh, most of the initial stops have been fairly negligible. Uh, exactly. for very negligible actions. Exactly. And again, you are truer words never spoken when you said this is something that is systemic. It is systemic in that it crosses the boundaries of not just the police on the street, but again, it goes to leadership, leadership at every level. It goes to leadership in police departments it goes to leadership in the legislative branches of these communities. It goes to leadership in the cities. It goes to leadership in um, the areas, the prosecutor's offices that are responsible for not just charging. But that is the other thing. If you had prosecutors that were diverse enough, they would see these patterns and say, well, my goodness, you know, if every person in this room is a white male, they don't see anything wrong with the fact that, heck, every single person I'm prosecuting almost is a black male. It's easy to be colorblind to it when everybody in the room looks like you. Your conscience isn't even offended by it because nobody, hardly anybody here looks like you. It bothers me because I'm reflected in the room by and large. And so for prosecutors who, again, all of whom are white males, they don't see themselves. We, we also, uh, we failed to, to mention one thing that I do want to circle back to, and, and that is the fact of criminal records being a detriment to employment. And when you have over-policing and you have people in court, yeah, there are a lot of ticky-tack minor things, but sometimes those add up to, to sort of a medium-level uh, offense. But the, the more people are in there, the more ticky-tack things they get, 
the more record they have, the more difficult it is for them to get employment. And the more difficult it is for them to get employment, the more chances are they're going to be over-policed on the street. Indeed. Is that right? Exactly. And it it makes them at least feel like they're targets. And that doesn't do anything to help engender better police community relations. I'll tell you another thing that doesn't help to engender better police community relations. And this is something that's extremely simple. Always riding in your cruiser and never getting out of your cruiser to walk the streets or to ride a bike to get to know the people that live in that community. You will never build relationships with people you don't know. You have to start somewhere. And part of the reason why there is so much tension between Black communities and police in general is because there is no relationship. There's tension between strangers. And right now, Black communities feel like police are complete strangers to them. And strangers present danger. And that is at some level, near, it, I will not say it is the heart of everything, but it's near the heart of a lot of this tension. You could get a lot done if you just bother to get to know them and not treat them, treat blacks like the other. Those people. Those people. And the and because the reason is this, it's 2020. Many of our families are not homogenous anymore. Many of our relationships, our friendships, our deep relationships, they aren't homogenous. And because of that, because of the the deep changes in all of these different types of relationships, it necessarily invites and yes, even requires that we move off the dime of those people and our own little corner of the world where the only ones that are there are the ones that look like us. It can't be that in 2020, your Thanksgiving table is filled with just the folks that look like you. That just seems incredibly less and less possible. Yeah. And that's because the world is changing. And because it is, we can't continue to nurture and harbor these same feelings that so easily divide us. When our youngest generation is yearning for unity, but we have so many that are just as fine with division as 401 years ago when the first slave ships landed. We're not there anymore. We are here. We are here. But we got to act like it. And we have to do more than just speak the words. It's much like how we ended our last conversation. Anti-racism requires that you do something. Well, I am hoping that people who listen to this conversation and listen to your perspective today walk away with a better understanding of the problems that we're facing with uh, the the police, it, it being a much larger picture. And it's not going to take just police reform. Police reform, yes, but it's going to take some court reform. It's going to take some hiring reform. It's going to take some policy reform. It's going to take cultural reform. All of this has to go in, and each of those pieces has to mesh for us to change the picture. Do you agree? I do, absolutely. And I also believe 
that communities have to be willing to hold their elected officials accountable and their police departments accountable. Your city councils are elected so that they represent the values of your community. And if the values of your community say that, no, we don't want a court that's there simply and only to use the police force as the the bullies to make money, but rather to use them to enforce laws and our courts are there to ensure justice is delivered. And that that is not a cost center. That's not a cost equation. Then that is what your legislative branch is there to do. And not to substitute some other wild meaning for that. That's what communities need to be courageous enough to stand up and to ensure is delivered for them and nothing else. But those kinds of conversations need to happen because inside the walls of some of these city governments, I genuinely believe the will of the communities are not necessarily being reflected because otherwise these pervasive behaviors would not have been able to fester for as long as they have. And mind you, like I said, this is what we saw in Ferguson. The judge there ended up resigning after openly admitting the court was being used to make money for the city. In six years, we haven't made much progress, but hopefully we will in the future. Judge, as always, thank you so much for talking with us. And uh, we're going to continue these conversations, and uh, uh, we're going to be talking about everything, the race and parenting to uh, uh, race and media. We have a whole line of topics coming up, and, and we really thank you for your participation with us. Thank you so, so, so much. And again, this has been such a wonderful and even cathartic experience being able to have these very candid discussions and to have the ability to express just the the real meaningful concerns that are being laid bare here. It's important that we have these conversations, but it's more important that we now begin to put them into action and make meaningful change wherever we can. Thank you. Onward. Thanks, Judge. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Judge Gail Williams Byers about systemic racism in our country's criminal justice system. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Dot edu.